Welcome to A Brief Chat. I'm Jason Crane. You can hear all past episodes of this show and also become a member at abriefchat.com. When you become a member, you not only get early access to every episode of the show, but you also get a monthly bonus episode. Thanks so much to everybody who is already supporting the show. It means the world to me. I've been interviewing people for a very long time now, and I think in all of that time, and she can correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm fairly sure this is the first time that I've ever interviewed my next guest, I'd like to welcome to the show my sister, Gretchen Gustafson. Welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. Have I ever interviewed you before? You have never. Uh, you must be I the only living member but... <laughs> of the family who has not appeared on one of my radio shows at some point I think that's probably true. <laughs> well, Welcome. And uh, why I wanted to talk to you, well, there's a lot of things I could interview about, but the particular one I wanted to talk to you about today is about speech pathology, because you and I were having a conversation uh, about a week ago, as we're recording this, where you were suggesting that neither of my kids would be able to identify the title of your job. And I said, I bet they both can. And so while we were talking, I texted them both, and in an extremely rare display of responsiveness, they both got right back to me, and they both knew what your job was called. But the reason that came up was we were kind of talking about no one who doesn't get speech services knows what speech pathology is. And so I Very thought, true. well, I have a means of dispelling the mystery by having <laughs> you on my show. So I know this it's a it's a broad field, but can you give us kind of the, the elevator pitch of what speech pathology is, what a speech pathologist does? Sure. How long have you got? Yeah, I know. That's the thing. There's a lot of things that you do. Well, it partly depends on what area you work in. For example, if you work on the medical side of speech pathology or the educational side of speech pathology. Okay. In terms of the educational side, which is where I work, we work on language skills. We work on articulation, which is how students uh, say, pronounce sounds. We work on um, fluency, which is like stuttering. We work on voice. We do some which means what? Uh, voices in terms of sometimes uh, like vocal abuse. Kids who do a lot of yelling um, can get uh, growths on their vocal folds that makes them sound kind of breathy when they talk or uh, kind of harsh sounding when they talk. And that's the thing um, you can correct through therapeutic practices as opposed to surgery? Sometimes, okay. yes. Yes, both are options in that case. We also, there are many speech pathologists who uh, work on reading and writing. Um, in my district, that's something we just kind of dip our toe into because we have reading specialists on okay. hand. And that's good because our field is so broad. There's enough other things that we can work on uh, without digging into that too much. Um, so there's really so occasionally, uh, depending on the type of school setting, we can get into feeding and swallowing. But mainly in most public school settings, uh, you address things that are affecting students uh, educationally and academically. Um, and if they're not, for the most part, then we don't necessarily pick a student up and address it. And then you also mentioned the medical side, which I know is not where you work, but can you talk about what folks who work in that area might do? In terms of uh, speech paths that work at hospitals, they tend to work with patients who have traumatic brain injuries or uh, patients who have had strokes, um, you know, anything that kind of affects the language centers of the brain, uh, any kind of trauma 
that affects those centers. They address that. Uh, in hospitals, they tend to do a fair amount of feeding and swallowing. Um, Which is what? It sounds obvious, but just to say a little more about what that means. Uh, for example, if something has happened uh, that has caused you to uh, have difficulty, you know, chewing and swallowing your food, um, you know, without choking on it or something, we might prescribe a special kind of diet, um, you know, where your food has to be has to be mashed or, uh, yeah. you know, put in a different form for you to be able to eat uh, successfully and safely. And are there exercises people can do in that situation to yes. like regain control of the muscles maybe? Or? Yes. Yeah. So there's a special called a video fluoroscopy. It's a, kind of a special scan where we can watch how you swallow kind of like a, a moving x-ray of sorts Okay. Um, and kind of figure out what's going on and then uh, prescribe different uh, activities um, you know, different swallowing activities and things accordingly. And I know one place uh, that you'll find speech pathologists, and I'm not going to get into the the political side of this discussion, but just going to bring it up. One place that you can find speech pathologists is in prisons, right? It is. Yeah. For years, I thought I wanted to work in a prison eventually and then kind of changed my mind over time. But yes, yeah, some speech pathologists work in um, prisons or uh, like juvenile detention centers um, in order to, you know, when when people come out of those settings uh, and need to go on interviews and, and things like that, the first thing that a lot of people notice about you is how you speak. And so speech pathologists can work with adolescents and adults to help them improve their skills, I guess, if you will, uh, in areas that are important for them once they get back into the world. So uh, I want to talk about you specifically for a minute before we get back into a more generalized conversation. How did you learn that speech pathology was a thing that existed? <laughs> when I was in fourth grade, uh, you were dating a girl at the time in high school, since you're just a wee bit older than I am. Yeah. Uh, Six days. And <laughs> I'm just a genius. She was going to go to college to be a speech pathologist. And me being young and impressionable, I thought, well, that sounds cool. I think I'll do that. You only heard the term, though, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I had no idea. You didn't have explained to you what it meant. Just because, you know, she was older, so I thought she was cool. And I was like, oh, if she's going to do that, I think maybe I'll give that a shot. And And here we are. just like any (laughs) rational fourth grader, you then determined the entire course of your life at that moment. Yes. And have now been doing it for decades. Yes. Oh, God, decades. Yes, that's very true. So when did you actually start to explore what speech pathology meant? When I was a senior in high school, at the beginning of my senior year, I essentially had enough credits to graduate. So um, I took just the bare bones classes that I absolutely had to take. Uh, And then there was a teacher in the business department who organized um, off-campus internships uh, for seniors to be able to go out into different jobs in the community and shadow, essentially. Obviously, without any training, you can't actually do anything hands-on. And so I spent a little bit of time at the VA in our hometown and spent some time at the primary school in our hometown. I'll just break in to say for folks who might be from other places, the VA is the Veterans Administration. And there is a hospital in Canada where they do treatment for military veterans. Yes. And so my time at the VA definitely made it clear that adults were not 
the path that I was going to take. Okay. Um, but I absolutely loved my internship at the primary school and working with children. Um, my supervisor was fantastic. And I, in fact, then four years later, ended up going back there to do my student teaching and had an amazing experience. She was great. I learned a lot, even just by sitting and observing and said, yep, I think I can, I think I can do this for the long haul. By the time of those two shadowing internships, were those the moments where you discovered what speech pathology actually was in practice? Or had you done some research ahead of time and asked, okay, now I want to see these two things? I don't really remember specifically, but I'm sure. I mean, I wouldn't have known how to ask for what I wanted to do if I hadn't at least learned a little bit. Sure. I mean, I probably, even way back when, in fourth grade or whatever, you know, probably chatted with your girlfriend a little bit or so, you know, and she kind of... On the on a surface level, explained to me what it was and yeah. you know what to do, but I don't really remember the specifics. But I'm sure I knew at least a little something because that's how I knew how to suggest to the the business teacher what I wanted to do. And I don't believe, by the way, that she is a speech pathologist. Not anymore. No, Correct. she was at yes, one point right? for several years. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, but yes. you still are. <laughs> I still am. Still am. Still going strong. When you went to college, did you have to? Pick, so since you'd already decided at that point, adults are not the direction I'm going to go in, did you specialize at that point in working with kids or do speech pathologists kind of get trained in everything and then you just choose a job in the direction you want to go in? Yes, yeah, so you get trained in everything and then ultimately choose which way you want to go after you graduate. However, if you have a sense of what direction you want to go, there are some uh, kind of elective, if you will, speech therapy courses that you can take to kind of steer you one way or the other. So I certainly took at least a few uh, of those classes that were more geared toward children because that was the path that I was pretty sure I wanted to take. But in terms of your required classes, everything prepares you to work with birth through geriatric <laughs> when you're finished with school. Okay. And you went on to get an advanced degree. You got an undergrad degree and then you got a master's as well. Is that because that was required or it's just something you chose to do? Uh, it is now required. Uh, but, you know, as you mentioned, I've been doing this decades. So when I graduated from college, uh, In the master's... <laughs> Very funny. Uh, master's degree was not required if you wanted to work in a school. If you wanted to work in a school, you only needed a bachelor's um, to get the job. And then within five years, you needed to get your master's. Okay. Now, master's in a school is entry level. So they won't hire you, at least in New York State, if you don't have a master's degree. And people can go all the way through PhDs. Is that so that you can teach or is there a special kind of practice you can do with a PhD. Um, partly so that you can teach. Certainly, there are very few people uh, in schools, I would say, who have their doctorates, but uh, more, it's a little bit more popular, I guess, in the medical side of things um, to go on to get your doctorate just to have that advanced um, training that you need for the types of things that you're dealing with in the medical setting. So, you work in a school. What age kids do you deal with? I work with students kindergarten through 12th grade. Um, so you're looking at kids who are four or five up to kids who are, you know, 
about 18 or so. Most of my particular experience is with kindergarten through fifth grade. And then just each year I tend to have, you know, just a few middle and high school students. When I was first out of college, I did home care with preschool and early intervention. So birth up to age five. And you did that through a private Through a different agency. Correct. Yes. And then uh, once I went full-time in a school two years after I graduated, uh, I continued to do home care on the side after school hours for the next roughly eight to 10 years. And so you've worked in uh, New York City in a, mm-hmm. uh, was, that was a private, private school, school, right? Mm-hmm. And then you work now in a, I guess, would we call it, is it a rural school district or is it a small, oh, yes. small town school district? Rur- yes, yeah. very rural, like one traffic light kind of town. Is that why you're dealing with kindergarten through seniors or would a normal speech pathologist have that wide an age range? Yes, that's because it's such a small district and we are all physically in one building. That's the main, and there are only two speech pathologists to cover the district. That's why there are so, why there's such a range. Uh, you know, in districts, for example, our hometown has a primary school, an elementary school, a middle school, a high school, and each of those buildings has, you know, their own oh, their okay. own staff. Um, so yes, because it's a small rural district, there is the need to cover such a wide range that you wouldn't necessarily get in a larger district with more staff. And so how is it determined who gets these services? Which kids end up coming to see you? It usually starts with a teacher or a special area provider, you know, library, PE, music, uh, having some concerns in class. And so they will come to us and kind of let us know what their concerns are. We have a conversation. Uh, Do we think it could be a speech and language issue? And sometimes, even if we don't necessarily, we are the place to start in terms of ruling out what the issue could be. Okay. Uh, And so they make a referral and then we have to get permission from the parents to evaluate. And then we do some testing and, you know, we have guidelines based on the testing, whether or not a student will qualify for services. So can you, without, uh, you know, using any identifiable qualities, but can you set up kind of a a hypothetical child for us? What might a teacher or a special, you know, a, a music teacher or whatever, what might they see or hear? And then what would what are the next steps? Like what can you get a little more specific for us? Sure. So for example, a teacher might come to us and say, you know, I have a difficult time understanding Johnny when he's answering questions in class. Okay. Um, and that to us, of course, then we start to think, okay, articulation, let's pick him up and evaluate sounds and see, you know, how the development is. Uh, a lot of times we get comments like that in the early grades, but there are many sounds um, that we don't necessarily expect children to be able to produce until they're in, you know, first grade, second grade. And not um, everybody, I assume, develops at the same rate. Exactly. Correct. Uh, and so we sometimes we'll evaluate a child and we'll say, you know, yes, they have these three er- errors when they're speaking, but... We're going to wait until the beginning of next year and we'll screen them again. You know, we wouldn't necessarily expect they'd have it at this point anyways. Uh, We also have a lot of teachers who come to us and say, you know, Johnny's having a hard time following directions. That's a big one. Johnny doesn't seem to listen. Johnny doesn't seem to understand, you know, the vocabulary that we're working on in class. And so then we want to be able to evaluate their language skills with the distinction that we are looking at whether or not their skills are age appropriate, not grade appropriate. Okay. Um, because, uh, 
well, without getting too deep into that, grade level expectations are just not appropriate <laughs> for okay. most students. And so it, it's very conceivable that a student could be struggling in class, but that it's not necessarily a language-based issue. Is there, and you just said you don't want to get too deeply into it, and that's fine, but is there, are we just learning more about what's age appropriate and grade level expectations haven't caught up to what we now know in terms of how kids develop? Or what, why is there that separation? Uh, grade level expectations are much too high for children's developmental level. Brain development has not changed <laughs> over the years. Kids develop, you know, typically along the same the same path. The things that we are expecting them to do uh, at different grade levels are just not most of the time developmentally appropriate. Uh, and so it's super important for us to to keep that in mind when we're evaluating um, and sort of keep keep expectations in check along sure. the way. Who pays for these services? Is this something that a school district pays for or does state aid pay for it or do parents pay for it? How do Who, who funds the services that these kids get? Well, it depends. Sometimes it is, yeah, it's just through the school district. You know, the school district hires the appropriate staff to provide, you know, speech therapy, occupational therapy, physical therapy. So you, you're not considered um, an so extra thing, and that you're correct. Just, it's built. You're into, as available as anything else. Yes, yeah. Okay. Yes. Um, but then there are some situations where students um, who receive special education services uh, may also be Medicaid eligible, in which case that's kind of a different level of service, um, you know, different requirements on the part of the providers, the speech pathologists, the OTs, the PTs. And in terms of documentation and showing that those services are uh, a medical necessity in some cases um, in the school setting, and then we bill Medicaid for those services. Do you ever run into to parents who either say, my child definitely needs speech services and your assessment is they don't, or you say, your child definitely needs speech services and they say, no, my child does not. Do you ever, do you ever find that kind of thing? It's been very, I've been super fortunate because I know there are people who work places where they run into that regularly. I have been fortunate to not really have that be an issue. Uh, for the most part, I would say when it has happened, it's been a, uh, you know, I think your child would benefit from these services and the parent says no. And that typically uh, has been the case with uh, students who would benefit from articulation therapy, uh, where the parent just, you know, thinks it sounds cute, thinks they're going to grow out of it, you know, whatever the case may be. Sure. Um, and again, that's happened. I can count on less than one hand the number of times that that's happened to me in my career. For the most part, parents are, are grateful to have the service. Some will question you, you know, why do you think my child needs this? What's the benefit, particularly if you're going to be pulling them out of the classroom, they want to know that what they're agreeing to is going to be helpful for their child. But yeah, very rarely have I personally had that issue. I think if you're, you're forthcoming with the parents, you explain the benefit, you show them the test scores, you know, the data that is backing up your, your thought that they need services, um, most parents are usually pretty on board. Because by the time you would talk to a parent, as you say, you've already got data supporting your conclusion. Yes, correct. And then, you know, the classroom teacher has let them know what their concerns are in the class. I think that's also a big part of it that, um, you know, when the teacher expresses things that the student's having difficulty with in class, that really emphasizes the need for help. And then parents are happy to have that help in whatever form. And I guess what, what kind of led me to ask that question was I, I could imagine there would be 
Well, I mean, I just think I think back to my own schooling where kids who, you know, had to go to special ed classes, as as it was called at the time. I don't even know if that's an outdated term, but there was some stigma attached to having to receive any kind of special help in in school. And so, I, I don't. Maybe you can just tell me is that is that still a thing? Is it has it gotten better over the years? What's your experience of that? Yeah, I think it's definitely gotten better over the years. It's certainly still there because a lot of the parents of the students that I would service were going to school when you were back when that was a thing and there was a stigma. Um, I think we've come a long way in breaking that train of thought in terms of helping people not only realize the benefit of what we do, um, but also doing it in such a way that we are now, um, you know, maybe less disruptive (laughs) to the academic process, you know, we structure therapy in ways, uh, for example, pushing into classrooms instead of always pulling students out. Or, you know, uh, some of our articulation therapy, we call it speedy speech. We see a student individually for just five to seven minutes versus the old school way of pulling a whole group for a half an hour, and then they, you know, are missing that half hour of instruction in class. Um, So I think a lot of those kinds of changes over time have definitely helped to reduce the stigma There are lots of times where I'll go to a classroom to pick up a student and five of the kids who don't get my services, when can I go with you, Miss G? (laughs) (laughs) So no stigma there. there. (laughs) They want to come play games and hang out too, so... Yeah, they, I was gonna. I was just gonna say if they've seen all the games that you uh, devise. uh, Do you have any sense of how? How teachers either feel or what they even think about what you do? I guess they're they're dealing with you, to, you know. But I, I kind of feel like you might be as much a mystery to some members of the staff that are around you as you are to the general public if they don't get your services. Well, I think that's probably the case in a lot of situations. But because my district is so small, um, so you know, we don't have a huge amount of staff, and we also have very little staff turnover. You know, it took several years when I started. Um, to kind of get people on board and more informed with what I do and why I do it and how I'm there to help. But I think for, you know, quite some time now, I'm I, again, I've been fortunate to be in the position that, you know, our, our staff members are, are very supportive. Um, they are appreciative that we are kind of a first line of defense, like I said, and either ruling in or ruling out um, any difficulties or what might be contributing to academic difficulties. But that's definitely not the case <laughs> in a lot of settings, particularly larger uh, school districts, um, you know, where I know just from, from reading firsthand accounts from other therapists that teachers can be, you know, standoffish about having a therapist in their classroom or, you know, feel like they're being observed or watched or evaluated in some way. Um, but yeah, in my district, they're pretty great about letting us letting us come in, you know, uh, working collaboratively with us uh, and seeking us out when they when they need some help. So because I've known you for a while, the uh, <laughs> one effect that has had on me of many is that when I'm watching, you know, TikTok or Instagram reels or whatever it might be, I'll occasionally see a comedian or a, a public speaker of some sort who clearly has some sort of speech issue. And it's one thing if this person is, you know, maybe in their 70s or 80s and education and speech treatment has changed over the years. But when I'm seeing a person who's, let's say, in their 20s, 
how is it that someone has made it out of school without some of these issues being addressed? Is, are there kids who just don't have access to the kind of services you provide or districts where that's not provided? Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Even in this day and age, uh, you know, many, many private schools don't offer those types of services. To be fair, you know, private schools, charter schools, et cetera, where they can be kind of selective about who they take often tend to not take the types of children who who have speech and language issues. But yes, they typically don't have, you know, speech therapists, occupational therapists, physical therapists on staff. There are situations in those schools, uh, for example, where if a student uh, is deemed to need special education services, then the uh, public school district in which that school is or where that student resides is then required to provide those services. In my particular district, there are no public, or excuse me, no private schools or anything like that sure. with, within the uh, the district, so we don't have to worry about that. Uh, we do have some. We've had that issue come up a few times with homeschooled students. Again, students who you know have to uh, do some of their work in in groups, but don't have access to special services. And you may have just said that, but just to clarify, so if a, let's if a homeschooled kid needs speech services, where does the funding for that come from? How do, do they have to pay for that out of their own pocket? They're still or? considered, yes, they're in district. They're still considered a district resident. Okay. So, uh, however, for example, in my district, I believe this is the case across New York State, a homeschool student would need to qualify to be a special education student. They would need to have an IEP. And then the parent would be responsible for bringing them into the school for services versus, you know, a student who has a couple of articulation errors that's not that severe they're not going to qualify for an IEP which is and then, that's an individual education plan uh, correct okay. yes for uh, kind of the document that outlines the services and goals for special education okay. students they won't have an IEP and therefore will not be eligible for a parent to bring them in for services they have to be that kind of more severe level of need and so if the parents still wanted services, in that case, they, they would be going to a private agency like the one you first worked with when Correct. you came out of college. Correct, yes, right? and okay. you know, either paying out of pocket or having their insurance cover the services. And the example of an ad adult that I was using before who still has speech-language issues, obviously many of them by that point, I guess, have decided that, you know they're going to deal with the hand they were dealt. But if someone wanted to f get services for that, is it too late by that point? Can you still do things to work on some speech issues, even when you're an adult? Sure, absolutely. Uh, it's obviously harder because you, you know, at that point, you're so trained to say sounds the way that you've been saying them your whole life. Sure. Um, but absolutely, you can still seek out a speech pathologist and there are, are still ways to remediate those errors. Does your job involve continuing education? Are there, are there, is your field changing? Is it constantly updating? Are you having to learn new things or do things to kind of maintain your, your currency and fluency in the field? Yeah, always. I am in New York State. I am required to have a license uh, to practice. And I also have a uh, national certification called my Certificate of Clinical Competence, also known as your C's. Um, and so to maintain both my license and my C's, uh, I'm required to have 30 hours of continuing education every three years. 
And then within that, there's a few, you know, the state has a few specific guidelines. Um, For example, you now, I believe, have to have at least one hour or two hours of that time has to be an ethics course. Okay. Um, You know, only so much of it can be done online. Some of it has to be done at, you know, in-person conferences. For my C's, there's no, there's no guidelines. You just have 30 hours. They can... They can all be online. They can all be in whatever, you know, whatever area you want. Um, but the state has has a few more restrictions. Do the hours that you get for your state certification, do they count toward your national certification as well? Or is that two separate pools of hours that you have to get? They, they count. However, uh, my particular three-year timeframes for each are not the same. Okay. So only about two years of my time overlaps where the hours I get will count toward both. And then I go through a stretch of time where I don't necessarily need the hours. You know, I'll hit my 30 hours for the one, but then still need, you know, another 10 hours or so for the other one. So I just have to have to play my cards right and, you know, fit the continuing ed in in the time that it that it best serves me. Is that national certification? Is that required for you to do your job in New York State? It is not. And in fact, even having my my state license is not it is required so that I can be a Medicaid provider in New York State. Okay. Um, but I technically don't need either thing to work in a school in New York State. I just need my teaching certificate. And so why do you have them? <laughs> why do I have them? <laughs> Um, first off, your license, as I just said, allows you to bill Medicaid, and that makes you look better on paper to a school district that would like to bill Medicaid and make money off of you. So in um, other words, through your job, you can bring revenue into the school district by being able to serve students whose services are paid for via Medicaid. Correct. Which is external revenue coming into the school district. Correct. To pay for your the work that you're doing. Correct. Yeah. So you're a money-making part of the school district in that in that example. I sure am. Okay. (laughs) Um, And then having your C's, your national certification, it just shows that you've kind of gone above and beyond with your, you know, back when I first graduated, it required uh, additional testing and things like that in order to get that. So it just goes to, you know, it's kind of that piece of paper that shows that you are uh, kind of the highest quality candidate with, you know, who's who's put in the time and effort and finances to to get to where you are. Have you seen any major changes in the way your job operates during the time that you've been doing it? Have there have there been things that you did when you first started that you would never do now or things that no one even knew to do back when you first started? Or is it have the changes not been as broad as that? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, you know, I don't feel like there's been a lot of changes over time. I feel like uh, probably the the thing, one of the things that has changed the most has just been our awareness and our understanding of some, you know, different disorders and needs uh, that have led us to maybe evaluate differently uh, or evaluate sooner. Just I think in terms of my knowledge of because my field is so, so broad and you know, it's kind of when you think of it, it's kind of like your general practitioner. They know a little about a lot of things. And then, you know, if you break a bone, they send you off to that doctor. You know, you have cancer, they send you to that doctor. Sure. I feel like speech is, is kind of the same way. So I think that my my breadth of knowledge has increased over time based on need and demand. But aside from that, I can't really say that there's any facet of my job that I feel has 
changed significantly as long, you know, over the years, as long as you keep up with educating yourself in, in the changes that come to the field of speech pathology, you know, I think you're, you're in pretty good shape. Does being in a small school district necessitate that greater breadth of, of knowledge? Do you, do you think you encounter more things because you're kind of the, the one-stop shop for kids of all ages in your district or would any speech pathologist be? Yeah, mostly because of age, not as much because of the types of cases we have. Um, But there's just there's real, you know, real variety. And there's real difference between, you know, treating a student who's in primary school versus treating a high school student. Um, So the approaches to treating different age levels, I think is is probably what's most challenging and what has led to uh, my increase in understanding of different disorders and things um, versus just, you know, in a small district, you actually don't have exposure to that many different types. You know, for example, in all of my years at my current district, I think I've only had three students who stutter Um, versus in a larger district, you're likely to have many more students. And, you know, so every time it comes up, I have to kind of reeducate myself so yeah, makes a difference. And I think if you were just to ask a person on the street, what does a speech pathologist help with? I would imagine stuttering would be one of the first <laughs> things anybody would think of, but that sounds like it's a lot less common in it's, practice than... Yeah, 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 it's really not. And again, it tends to be uh, one of those things that is more specialized. There are speech pathologists who specialize in fluency. Um, and so if it got to a point where I felt like I could no longer handle it kind of, you know, within the academic setting, then I would certainly want to refer a student out for that versus some other things that I, you know, have a lot more experience dealing with. Well, this has been fascinating. Obviously, I've talked to you a lot about what you do over the years, but it was fun to do it in kind of a condensed, more formal way. Uh, So thanks a lot for taking the time to talk to us. Yeah, thanks for having me on, letting me share some information. That's my sister, Gretchen Gustafson, who's a speech pathologist in in a school district in the Finger Lakes region of upstate New York. You've been listening to A Brief Chat. I'm Jason Crane. I'm her brother. If you want to find more of these episodes, you can go to abriefchat.com. You can also become a Patreon supporter at abriefchat.com. When you do that, you get not only uh, early access to every episode, but you get a monthly bonus episode which some of the time is me rambling on about whatever comes into my brain when I turn the recorder on, and sometimes is a maybe a recording of a old poetry reading or various songs and other weird audio that I've done over the years. It's kind of a grab bag, and it can be yours again at abriefchat.com if you sign up to become a member. Thanks to everybody who has done that already. It really means the world to me. Thank you for listening, and I will talk to you next time here on A Brief Chat.